So I just started my own company Instagram, Joan Gary Consulting, and I'm learning a lot. And by the way, you should definitely follow us. I'm, I'm, I was supposed to tell you that. Now I'll confess, I'm a boomer. I'm quite attached to Facebook. And my work on Facebook, while often witty, clever, heartwarming, or moving, and of course humble, has zero aesthetic value. It's never crossed my mind that that would matter, that, for example, the 9 to 12 Instagram grid of all your posts should be designed in a certain way, that the grid says something about you and has this kind of aesthetic value. Art and social media. It's actually not something I would typically pair together. But if you're in the art world, well, then it would matter a whole lot, wouldn't it? So today we're going to talk about the intersection of art and social media and more. For those of you who are staff or board leaders for arts organizations, you'll want to listen up. But for all of you, this podcast will be of value because my guest today lives in a very interesting intersection and really knows her stuff about social media. And she will no doubt have tips for all of you, but especially for those who want to take a more artful approach to social media. I'm guessing she's going to tell us how much that matters when you run an arts organization or any other mission-driven nonprofit for that matter. And you know what? You're not going to have to wait long to find out. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Described by Artnet as one of the leading lights of art world social media, Robin Sembalist is a journalist and editorial strategist. The longtime executive editor of Art News, she was published widely in the Wall Street Journal and many other publications, and maintains her popular at R Zembalist feeds on Instagram and Twitter. Robin developed her social media savvy by channeling her experience as a longtime editor and writer into these new platforms. A Long Island native, something she and I share, Robin studied art history and English at Yale, something I don't share with Robin, before beginning my editorial, her editorial career at Artform. She spent a year in Spain fulfilling a dream to become a foreign correspondent. She returned to New York and was soon back in the art world as the news editor of Art News, where she wrote and supervised reports on the culture wars, war loot, the rise of multiculturalism, and many other major stories. In 1998, she became the executive editor of the century-old magazine, shepherding it into the digital era with the launch of its website and then social media channels, creating and running its intern program and expanding its contact to reflect diverse communities. Communities. Five years ago, when Art News was sold, Robin went out on her own, founded Robin Symbolist Editorial Strategies, an editorial consulting business. And in the last five years, she's helped dozens of museums, nonprofits, galleries, organizations, fairs, and individuals to design and implement social media strategies. We met Robin through a strategy assignment here at Joan Gary Consulting, and my teammate, Lindsay Hoffman, dubbed her a genius art media consultant and forward-thinking person about pictures, ideas, influence, and social media. She also claimed that Robin was fun, and Lindsay knows that fun is a significant core value for me. So I called Robin and said, do you want to do this? I might add that with close to 48,000 followers on Instagram, she's probably doing something right that we can learn from today. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Joan. Thank you for having me. So 
Before I really dig in, can you offer our listeners a glimpse into what your world looks like today? Now, I played around on Robin Sembolist, and it's R-O-B-I-N-C-E-M as in Mary, B as in boy, A-L-E-S-T.com. And I looked at the website, but I'm, I'm sure that you're going to make this story interesting and fun. No pressure. What do you do and for whom? What do I do and for whom? So on my own content production side of things, on my own Instagram, I chronicle my travels around the art world. And I have a lot of access from being a journalist my whole career. So I'm constantly going to museums, galleries, public art performances. And I chronicle that on my Instagram. And I always explain a little bit of who this person is or what they're doing in a very accessible way. And I think that's why I have so many followers. And that's at least one of the reasons you have. That's at least one of the reasons. The, The thing I do in terms of my consulting is this. At a time when social media is increasingly the first place that new audiences will come to you in a lot of organizations, um, Social media is assigned to the digital natives who understand how to use the platforms, but not necessarily for work. So I come in and I say, okay, let's look at your mission. Let's look at your the goals of your organization. Let's look at your exhibitions, your programs, your publications, your development, your shop, your restaurant, all the different points. And let's come up with strategies of how to promote each of these individual topics on social using the best mixes of words and pictures in a way that people on those platforms will engage with them. Okay. So um, could you give me an example of something uh, like, so, so bring that to life for me, Uh, pick a, pick a client, any client, and tell me what sort of how you approached it, what you did and sort of what the out, what, what the outcome was like. So say that you have a mu- you have different kinds of museums, right? You might have a children's museum or a university museum um, or a culturally specific museum. So in each of those cases, there's specific kinds of content and messages that they need to get out there. So in a university museum, you might want to say, how can we get across that this is a safe place to have difficult conversations, that it's a place of education, that it's an opening place, it's an open place for students to come and learn and explore creativity? Well, what are the kinds of images that we can use to share that? And what can we pair them to in terms of our programs, our exhibitions, so that it makes sense? Because you want to give the sense that a museum is a place that people come. What you're trying to sell in a way is the experience, right? right? That's what this transformative moment that happens when it's just you and the artwork in the room and there's nothing else in the world there. That's the kind of thing that you're trying to communicate through the pictures. If it's a children's museum, for example, we might work on different ways to promote different workshop. So you would want to say the ages of the children. What's the takeaway of the workshop? Are you going to take home a flower or are you going to make a tree? Are you using paper or using clay? So that the parent knows that the kid's going to get a certain kind of experience. You want to have a sense that um, there's a diverse audience coming to museums. A lot of times clients will say, we're trying to get local people from the neighborhood and I'll open up the Instagram and it's super homogenous. And the only people of color that you see are the kids from the school sitting on the floor. That makes a lot of sense. Um, now I don't want to spend a lot of time down memory lane because of both of us are of a certain age and memory <laughs> lane is a lot fuzzier than it used to be. But 
What makes you good at what you do? It struck me as I thought about your bio that there are a lot of things that kind of tie together in this kind of perfect bundle. And I'm also struck by the fact that um, of, of what life was like in 1998 when you joined Art News and what social media looked like then and sort of how did you so how did you tie your experience into the um the the now beginnings the door was beginning to open into this like website social media space can you yammer about that for a little while definitely so <laughs> In the spectrum of news writing, of art writing rather, I was always on the news side of things. So even at Art Forum, which was and still is a very theoretical magazine, my own writing has been very much tailored to a general interest audience. And from the beginning, I was writing about global art for mainstream audience. I was writing for El País in Spain. I was writing for the Wall Street Journal. I was writing for Japanese Vogue. So I was always very concerned with making my message understandable to an audience, even if they didn't come in with a deep knowledge of art to begin with. Then when I was at Art News, I did a lot of reporting on nonprofits and museums. I covered the culture wars. I covered all the, um, the controversies over public art, legal issues, thefts, lawsuits, restitution, you name it. And while I was at Art News, I started to get involved. I launched, sorry, while I was at Art News, I launched the website. And then I got interested in the social media. So I got on my own Tumblr and I found a very fascinating thing happening on Tumblr and the way that people were communicating in this new platform, a kind of blog platform where people were sharing. So I got about 150,000 followers on Tumblr and I was really obsessed with what were the types of language that worked, that engaged with people. Because of course, what happens in print is that on the printed page, you have the headline, the subhead, the photo, the text, and the words, and they're not separated. So what happens in digital and social is that the headline comes off by itself and it floats out there into space. If your headline is just a pun or a turn of phrase, it's not working for you because no one's understanding why they're supposed to click on your story. That's a profound difference. Okay, wait a minute. I want you to stop there. Uh, so I, I got the the news part. What do you mean by that? What you said about social that headline sort of floats out there. I, I you you kind of lost right, me. right. So if you have a printed not if you have a printed page in a magazine, yes. right? You have on that page you have type. The type will have a headline. The type will have a subheadline or a deck or whatever you're calling it. You have your text. You have your captions, you might have pull quotes or call outs, and you have an image. So those are all the pieces that people consume in one point and one bite in print. So what happens on the printed page is that the headline, the subhead, the text, the captions, the call outs, and the photos are all in one package, right? You open yes. up the magazine and there's your article that you're reading. Got it. When the article is in digital form on the website and you send the article out into the world, so you want people to click on the link and read your article, if you have a vague headline, which worked perfectly fine on the printed page because it lived in harmony with the subhead and the photos and the text, and now the headline's out there on its own. So if the headline is called Painted Black or some Tomorrow is Another Day, or something that seems to work with the content, and then it's out there on their own, 
out there on its own, it's not working for you because people won't know why to click on your link. So when you say living out there, you're saying that it actually has no context, that the what you described in print, it's a package. And so I don't have to go far to get that headline into the context in which it is intended for. Correct. So what happens is when you tweet a story or when you share a story on Facebook and you're only getting the first couple of words, maybe a dozen words before the link, you have to maximize that real estate. That's real estate for you. You can maximize every single word in that package to add value and give people a reason to click on your link. Okay. So I I have a bazillion questions that are probably broader than the art world, but I I do want to, I want to grab onto something about sort of, are there, um, so if I run a museum or I run a symphony orchestra or anything in the sort of the art space, um, are there real differences between the social media in the art world from main sort of either, well, I was going to say mainstream brands, but I almost think from other kinds of mission-driven organizations. Is there something you have to pay attention to more so in the in the art world um, uh, than if I run a homeless shelter or a food pantry, for example? Well, I think what happens that with every mission-driven organization, getting out the different aspects of the mission and showing how the institution gives back without this kind of your welcome philosophy. You know, there's certain institutions that are just like, oh, here, we did this thing for this community. You're welcome. So using photos (laughs) almost as testimonials to show how you're giving back in the world is a really important part of social media for nonprofits because they're usually trying to get more grants, different partners, and wider audiences. In the visual art world, and I suspect the same thing is true for for symphonies, for example, you have the added problem that people are intimidated by the content. They don't think it's for them. They don't feel welcome. They don't think they're going to understand it. So they're not really understanding why they can go, why they should go to the art museum. So in the case of some of these art institutions that are trying to broaden the audiences, They want to be using it to demystify the content and showing people what they're going to get when they go there. Interesting. Um, So I was also interested by the name of your company, which is Robin Semblist Editorial Strategies. So why did you pick that as the title of your consulting firm? I went with the more straightforward Joan Gary Consulting. It's me. I consult. So, but I don't, at, at first blush, one could argue that you do a lot of different kinds of things between, besides social and digital. Why didn't you, I'm actually just curious why you named your company this and how you define editorial strategy and why that made sense to call your company that. Well, one short answer is that if I had just said consulting, people probably would have thought I was going into art consulting, which Mm -hmm. I'm not doing. I don't Mm -hmm. sell art. I don't know anything about the market. And the point of editorial strategies is this. In a way, what's the interesting question is what's the difference between the nonprofit and cultural social media strategy from brands? So brands have a different return on investment because they often have a point of sale. Right. Nowadays, if you're on social media and you're selling chapstick, you want people to go all the way through and buy the chapstick and then post more social media about it so more people buy the chapstick. 
right? We're not really selling a product. We could be selling tickets, especially in the case of the symphony. But even before that, what we're trying to do is create a kind of magazine about our nonprofit. Because the whole point of social media marketing is that it's in the guise of editorial. In other words, Purina doesn't necessarily put out, they, they do regular advertising, I guess, but the point is that there's all these cat videos out there from the pet food companies because that's editorial content, right? So what people are looking for when they follow a museum is a kind of story. What are the people, places, and things that are happening here? What's going on in this place? And in order to do that, you want to have editorial content because otherwise you get these calls to action that are five more days, last week, come see our show, but you're not telling people why. So the people that are seeing these, these calls to action that say five more days are getting 20 other messages that say five more days and you haven't given them a reason to pick your institution. So the editorial content is saying, what's the mission? What are the exhibitions? What are the programs and what are the mission points that we're writing about in a way that we can serve up to our audience, to potential influencers like journalists, to different philanthropies and partners? How can we tell them the best, fullest stories about ourselves using these photo-based platforms? Excellent. Um, talk to me about... So I'm, I'm taking you down memory lane, but just for a moment, and I and I promise I will escort you back. Um, what did you? Was there anything you learned really early on as you kind of um, worked your way through the early days of website development and social media? That was, um, you know, the, what what lessons did, did you learn that you carry with you still to this day? I think that you can never underestimate how short people's attention spans are. So you're better off working with that instead of against it. It's kind of like video killed the radio star. Um, so, you know, as a, as a complete digression, my wife worked in, uh, in children's television when she first uh, came out of college and blames Sesame Street for our attention problems is that kids learn in these two or three minute segments. People actually point at MTV, which is actually just a variation on Sesame Street. So anyway, I have very strong theories about why we have grown, we ha why our world is filled with people who have short attention spans and everyone thinks, and I love Sesame Street. I know many people who work there, but that we did actually train small children to think in small little bites. Well, it's also because now we're using pictures and a picture speaks thousands of words. Right. So that it might also be that the package itself, and this is the part that's the editorial strategy, is how do you maximize all the parts of it, given people's short attention spans so that the sum is more than the whole of its parts? That could be a photo set, right, where you're doing a couple of pictures that prove a point. It might be the kind of language that sends readers back to the photo or makes the reader want to know more. So there's all kinds of things that you can do to work with the attention span instead of just bemoaning the end of civilization because people have no attention. <laughs> Duly noted. All right. So... <clears throat> How so, so let's ask the question that I suspect a lot of people who act, listen to my introduction. How does someone like you build a following of 48,000 people? 
Because it's not, it, it, you could have the best content in the world, but that's just not enough, is it? No. So there were a couple of things I did when I, when I got going on my Instagram. And by then I had already spent a number of years on Tumblr and Twitter. But Instagram is even more visual. So the first thing I did was that, I, I don't know if it was the first thing I did, but one major reason people are interested in my Instagram is that it's a chronicle of art that I'm seeing and I only post art that's up. I don't know how I started doing that, but that's what I do. So what happens is that that becomes a kind of service journalism because it's showing people what's on view at any time. I so see. for the people that are in the art world, people that work in galleries can never go to shows, you know, <laughs> because the they're galleries are open the days they're working. Yeah. Right. And so for them, it's information. It's also information for people who want to know what to see. My feed is also diverse. It's not just um, the big galleries in Chelsea. I go to the boroughs. I go to culturally specific organizations. So also a lot of people in the art world follow me because they're not seeing the same stuff that they're seeing in the mainstream out outlets. They're always seeing something different and interesting. And then I do a little in the demystifying department. So I always give the title. I always give the year. I always give the medium. I always give the gallery. And then if I have time or space, depending, I'll do a couple of sentences just explaining something. Maybe it's how they made it. Maybe it's their intention. Maybe it's a little bit more about the artist, just a little way into the piece. A tiny little of color commentary. Yeah, a little tapas, if you will. (laughs) All right, so... um, I didn't ask you this question when we talked earlier, but um, can we can we play around with a, a, pr- a pretend organization? So I'm gonna I'm gonna pr- uh, pretend that you've been hired, um, and you tell me if this works and if you want to go in a different direction. I'm pretty nimble about this. Let's say you you're hired by an organization that's advocating for the rights of immigrants, and you have a Facebook, you have a Twitter. You have an Instagram. I think it would be super instructive to the people that are listening for you to wax eloquent off the top of your head about just like a couple of quick takeaways or bites for people is if I ran an, so immigration, it's a, it's an advocacy organization. It's lobbying for, you know, uh, the dreamers. Um, how might you approach each of those three platforms if you were advising them? And then I'm actually going to ask you kind of the same question, but if it's a direct service where you're actually, you know, feeding people or providing beds for people. Do you, do you mind if we go down this case study lane? No, not at all. Good. It's better well, than memory lane, I think. <laughs> All right. So the first thing, even with what you told me, is still separating you out as to what makes this organization distinctive from other organizations that are lobbying for dreamers, because there's many, right? So one thing that we want to do when we set up our feeds to begin with is come up with appropriate visuals, because you've got cover photos in your Facebook and your Twitter, and you're going to have to have Um, a profile photo in your Instagram. So you want to get your visual branding going from the beginning. You want to identify the types of images that you're going to put on these major sites because this is like your homepage on your website. This is the first thing people will see on your social, right? So you want to come up with an idea of that. And then you want to think individually in terms of what you're doing in the lobbying, how does that happen? 
how and where does that happen? Because out of that comes how you can visualize it, right? Now, obviously, it's not going to be interesting that people photos of people standing in on the footsteps of the Capitol building or something. So you want to come up with some kind but, of action. But, but, but if I may say, lots of organizations that advocate for issues, that's their go-to image. Okay, but the, that becomes less interesting because the more you see it, it loses content because it doesn't have the specificity of what's happening. Right. Okay. And the other thing that you see, and I can't speak for your organization. I, is I, that it's you, not my organization. I made it up. I know that. I'm playing. <laughs> um, is that in a lot of cases like this, what you see in the terms of the photography is that for some reason, the people that run the organization get these, you know, kind of um, fancy profile photos. And then all the profiles, all the pictures of the immigrants have this paparazzi look. So one thing that you want to do from the beginning is come up with a kind of visual language that works for everyone across the board, whether it's the leadership of the organization or the immigrants in this kind of ennobling photography. And the action that happens, the action of the helping, the action of the helping is not the thing that's happening on the steps of the Capitol because you're not adding value unless the person's surrounded by five gorgeous dreamers, in which case, yes, use the picture. Great. Right. But you have to find a way to say, what are the results? How is the action happening? What are the literal actions that you're doing to help? And how can we see that in the images, right? By protagonizing the immig immigrants, right? But also showcasing the leadership in a way that they're interesting to journalists, for example, around the world who are calling to ask questions about the subject. But, but riddle me this, Batwoman. <laughs> But isn't one of the things that I do is that I mobilize tons of people to influence legislators to think differently about the issue and potentially vote the way we want them to. And so isn't that, isn't that helping, that picture of those people on the steps of the Capitol? By the, all of the words that you're going to write of what you just said going in the caption? I don't think that picture's doing a lot of work. The Again, right? Okay, the so picture has the picture to has to do a work. thousand words. So, the, in, in other words, say that if you were on the steps of the Capitol and you brought the dreamers with you, that's a photo. Okay. Okay, because now they too are the protagonists. It's uh, not just you. Okay, great. All right, that's the mission. So, what you're saying is that that the picture. Um, first you're saying the picture has to tell the story all, almost all by itself and that the protagonist in a picture for an immigrant advocacy organization has to be an immigrant and not the superhero that runs the organization that's that's doing all this hard work to run this organization. No, they should also be in the picture. But for example, Everyone should look like a superhero. This is what I'm saying, that the immigrants and the leadership should be conveyed in the same aesthetic or in a similar aesthetic so that the, you don't have a gorgeous profile photo of the superhero leader and then crappy photos of the dreamers. Everyone gets a good picture. And when you have the leader, you show the leader in the action, right? You have the leader in the field doing. That's different, right? Every leader eventually is going to, that works with dreamers is going to be at a protest or a rally or someplace. And this is where you get the visuals with the person's doing something, not just holding a briefcase, right? Yep. Makes sense. It's, right. So now, um, can you give me the quick, 
the quick 411 on the distinction between those. So again, I'm advocating for dreamers. Um, can you give me a quick bite on the distinction between how I, as the superhero leader of this organization, would use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram differently? Or is that right? All right. Quick. So one is the leader and one's the organization. So in the way you would think, but it's the same concept in that Instagram is kind of a little bit more of a diary in the behind the scenes. Mm. So Instagram is where you might have, um, again, more different events going on. You want to give a sense that this organization, maybe they have different branches working in Texas or California. You want to give a sense of the grid of that they're out there in the field. And that's the thing about DC. Like if you're looking at a grid in Instagram, the DC can only be one part of the grid, right? Because that the lobbying has to happen somehow the effects have to be shown in the field. So if you are the leader of the organization, then your Instagram is going to be partly your philanthropy, right? From the yep. point of view, not of the you're welcome, but again, of showcasing these people that you're helping, right? Yep. And there's people that do this very effectively. And then also just as, as a, I, I call it a citizen of the world. You're a person in the world. So you might be document. In other words, you want to be sharing your platform. If you're a person of privilege and leadership, you want to be sharing information and sharing things that you're seeing. And I'm not talking about the first class lounge. You know, that's something that people do. You know, if they're in auction houses, it makes sense if they're indicating a certain lifestyle. But if you're working in a nonprofit in an advocacy role, you would be sharing your privilege in another way is to say, I'm, sh I'm sharing my space. Since influential people are sharing my space, I want to use my space to share. So that might be the immigrants you're working with. It yep. might be another philanthropy. It might be someone that made a picture, that made your tie, whatever it is in your life, the people, places, and things in your own life on your Instagram. Okay, so that's Instagram. Yes, Twitter is more for news. I don't know that every executive needs to be on Twitter. Some like, well, obviously we know which executive likes it. But, um, <laughs> um, <laughs> But the Twitter is an extremely good place, even if you're not tweeting to monitor news, because even though Twitter is one of the most difficult platforms to manage, it's one of the most useful platforms in that it has the most tools to monitor how and when you're receiving information. Right. So you, you so so I'm running this immigration organization. I use Twitter to learn about things that are happening that might be impacting my ability to be successful in the pursuit of my mission. Correct. Because on Twitter you can have lists, and lists are a way to monitor news and information very efficiently. You can follow different groups of people in different fields. You can follow lists that other people made. There's lists of journalists that are involved with different um, issues, for example. There's a lot of different ways to be most efficient about news on Twitter. Okay, how about Facebook? Facebook is a more personal one, and I don't know that the executives need to be on Facebook. I think still the organizations, even though people are leaving Facebook, I think Facebook is very useful for events, for example. So if I were doing advocacy and I were doing events or rallies or poster-making workshops or whatever it is, I would definitely be on Facebook events. But because Facebook is a little bit harder to manage in terms of people bothering you, you know, if you're an executive and you're in your Facebook for family reasons, I think that's fine. But I don't know that you need to be putting your business story out there. Got it. Um, just uh, you, you made a little bit of an aside. Um, five years from now, is Facebook 
is Facebook still, you know, still a go-to the way that it is, or should people really be thinking about um, diversifying their social media portfolio, recognizing that Facebook is going to become less of an influencer? I think that it, it's definitely hard to tell. I mean, I know I was using Facebook 10 years ago, so in five years, who knows? Um, I think in our, I think Twitter and Instagram are still very relevant. And I think the best advice is to learn how to use the words and the pictures most effectively so that no matter what the next platform is, that you're primed to make it work for you. Excellent. Um, We are talking with Robin Sembalist. She was described by Artnet as one of the leading lights of art world social media. She has a background as a journalist and an editorial strategist, and she currently runs her own firm called Robin Sembalist Editorial Strategies. And in the last five years, she's helped dozens of museums, nonprofits, galleries, organizations, fairs, and individuals to design and implement social media strategies. And as I entered into this podcast, I... really felt like I was really going to be talking about this intersection between the art world and social media. But um, I have called this podcast an artful approach to social media. So it has given me free reign to go in all kinds of directions that I think would be of the greatest value to the most listeners. And so this next piece, our final piece of this podcast, um, uh, is a, these are a couple of big, broad questions, Robin. What is the mindset in the nonprofit space, art or otherwise, that most thwarts success? In social media or generally? Yeah, in, in social media. As, as, they, as, you, as you work with your clients and you're helping them to think about their social media strategy, what's the is there a mindset or an obstacle that thwarts success that you have to actually help people overcome? Yes. I think that in many cases, the DNA of institutions is still in print. And in the past maybe they had to produce an annual report, right? At the most, there was no content coming out of there. So what happens is, is that I got added in all these bits and pieces. So one part of the problematic mindset is that they have to kind of admit that every single nonprofit is now a publishing operation of a certain type because you've got your web content, you've got your mail blast, you've got your social, that's a lot of content. So if you're just assigning it to the digital native, you're probably not maximizing your options for this content to get your mission out in a bigger way. So I think the biggest obstacle is resisting the idea that they need to invest in a content management system right? And that they need to invest in training and staff of people that come in and take social media seriously in a way that integrates it with all of the rest of the branding and mission that's going on in there. Do you think some of that is uh, about, um, is generational in terms of who runs organizations um, and their lack of understanding of the power of it? I mean, I, I often see I often see people 
uh, see it, see all of these platforms as simply storefronts and they totally miss the boat about how you can use these platforms to build an army of people who are engaged with what you're doing and to use it as a platform to actually bring them closer to you, to invite them to know more and do more for your organization. And I, I sort of feel like so some boomers um that that's that that's a a challenge is that they don't they don't kind of get it well i think that's true to some extent and i definitely think that there are people of a certain generation that um feel that it's really just brunch or mean people or bullies, which is partly true that there's people posting all these things, but there's super serious conversations happening on it and it's not going away. So I think that that is that the resistance um, isn't very productive. And then one thing I like to show my clients is that they don't realize who's on this thing already. So one of the people I like to show is Philippe de Montebello. And as you know, he used to run the Met and he's a very proudly elitist person, right? Okay. And here he is on the Instagram. And every time I get this, Philippe's on Instagram? Yeah. Uh. And it's like a disturbance in the force. And I say, yes, Philippe is on Instagram talking to curators at the Met and other friends all over the world as our other colleagues at the Met and the Modern and the auction houses. And there's really been a paradigm shift now where people of all generations are using this to communicate through pictures right? That it's not just about marketing. It's about a much more than marketing. It's about building networks. And as you said, followings and careers. And these are followings that you take with you when you leave a job, right? Oh yeah. So if you go, you have a book that you're publishing. Now you have a following to tell about your readings. A lot of people, the mistake they make is only setting up the Instagram when they got the show opening or the book coming out. And then they have five followers, right? And then it looks promotional. So that would be other advice that you didn't ask me, which is that if you have any big project coming up like that, start your social media early so that you at least have a platform to work with to get the word out. Yep. Yep. Actually, when we, um, so I have a book about nonprofit leadership and we created a book launch team and they were using their social media platforms to get the word out. And as a result, a book that is fairly, you know, has a a fairly narrow niche, um, had crazy pre-sales. So, um, and everyone was happy about that. So let me ask you a question about this you, and whether you can counter this. So I think I, I have a particular bias about social media, the way I just described it, that it is a, in, for nonprofit organizations, particularly those, well, it's a, it's a mobilization tool in some ways, right? It's about building an army, a greater army of people who know about your organization and then actually calling them to action to come closer and closer to you. And that that's critical to the success of a nonprofit is that growing your sphere of influence is critical to your power. Uh, It's critical to your resources, all of those things. So I can, I have often said to myself, well, I don't know why people think about social media as marketing. I don't know why they see it as overhead expense. 
why don't they actually pitch to funders that it's programmatic? Because if I can mobilize 10,000 people through my social media platforms to do X, Y, and Z, you can't tell me that that's not programmatic. And I wondered if you, if you ran into sort of how nonprofits see this, how they're willing to invest in it, um, and, and sort of that. Can you, can you swim around that pond with me for a few minutes? Yes. And I think that you're right that it is programmatic, but it's, and it's also mission-based because what happens is that say that you're a foundation and you're giving to community organizations, small towns and cities, for example, if you're putting out content that might be an Instagram, a, a photo of an artist that you're working with, for example, with a little blurb of bio, you've now given collateral to that artist, which they can use to market themselves in their local community, send to grant other grants and funders and so on. So you've given a service to your grantee in terms of them, them, them empowering them to market their own work, which is also very useful, right? The same way in your lobbying organization, if you're creating content around the individual dreamers, that might be a case of that, that then that goes and gets disseminated in various individual communities, for example. Um, I think that part of the problem is that people are already paying for marketing and this is a different kind of marketing. So people don't necessarily want to pay more for marketing. And that's definitely the case when people are paying outside marketing firms. And my argument is more what you said that I'm talking about creating an infrastructure that's going to save time across platforms because you now have different people doing your web content, your email blasts and your social media and they're redundifying effort. They're all producing content on the same projects, but they're not working together. Or, so or you're a small organization and you have an intern who does all of them. Correct. And you're, the intern hasn't been trained in the mission and the message. So again, you're not maximizing the power of the platform. So by coming in and doing it on a project basis and saying, okay, here's the project. What are the visuals and how are we going to get this out across Facebook? Instagram, Twitter, the web, and the mail blast, and thinking about that at the top, you're eventually going to save a lot of time because now you have time and content management systems in place. What this means is that when the kid leaves, when the intern leaves, you still have a system because this is another thing I hear a lot. Oh, we had someone who was great and they left, but they left nothing there. So what I'm giving them is a way to say, okay, here's ways that you can share pictures Here's naming systems so that when someone has the flu, you don't have to go through 200 emails looking for a caption. Totally right. Um, just a couple more questions, and then we're almost out of time. Um, <clears throat> you talked a little bit about your own engagement strategy. Advice for nonprofits about how to build their following. Clearly, content is a, is a piece of it, but there's more to it. What, um, what advice can you offer about how to move your Instagram followers up, how to, you know, sort of how to create that army of people who are engaged? Um, because, you know, if you build it, you need them to come. Right. And I think that one of the main things, one of the main catchwords of content is storytelling for this reason, is that you have to create a compelling story because as a nonprofit, you don't have necessarily a space where people can come. This is the luxury that the museums have because they have a physical space and exhibitions. But if you're a nonprofit and, you're, and you have an office, then you have a, a larger problem. But you still want to think again, what are the people, places, and things that make this place go? 
how can we tell this story in a compelling way so that even if the person isn't coming to our rally or event, they still want to follow because we're so compelled in the story of the organization itself. Very good. Um, I, I think I have one last question before we uh, let you go back to um, editorial strategizing. Um, what do board members need to know about social media? And I guess I'm, I, um, I ask that question broadly, although I think at least a piece of it is um, how board members, I don't think board members use so they, they don't use social media enough to talk about the work of the organizations on whose boards they serve. But I don't know, just any, because uh, I'm sure that you have actually sort of grappled with this issue too about the role of the board in social media. Well, I think it's an interesting point because, again, a lot of time the investment has to come from the board. Someone has to go to the board to get the money. So I think what happens is that, say that you have an organization that has, has not invested in social media. And you have an intern doing it, right? Not well. What happens is that the younger funders that are coming in, the younger philanthropists and other kinds of more sophisticated organizations look at your social media and they say, hmm, maybe this organization isn't with it, right? So what's happened is that if you're not investing in it, it could actually end up being a downside because the perception of the organization can take a hit. The other thing is, is that if there's any kind of controversy, you think it's not going to be you, but if there's any kind of controversy that could happen for anything this day, and if no one knows what they're doing, you're going to have a more challenging time because you want to be able to, even if you're not posting on social media, you'd like to be able to understand how it works enough to monitor what people say about the organization or your organization and to if there's a controversy to be able to get the message out appropriately. And we know how many board controversies there are. So kind of pretending that there's not a whole controversy unfolding on social media is a short-sighted strategy. Crises and controversies, I think, are on the rise in the nonprofit space. I'm part of, uh, I, I see it with a greater scrutiny on the choices and the politics of board members. I see it with um, uh, staff who want to have a voice. It's why they came to a nonprofit, and if they in any way feel as though they have been muzzled, uh, if they feel like they're not part of the organization in some substantive way. They will um, organize. I've seen, I, I've seen a growth in the number of uh, organizations who unionize. So th um, the landscape of nonprofits have, has really changed in such a way that I, you know, my joke is if you have not had a controversy, it's not because you're good. It's just that you're lucky. Um, <laughs> right. I think that's true. Yeah. So any last, any last pieces of uh, wisdom before we set you on your way to go back to strategizing? Social media is fun. Yeah. You seem to really love what you do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, Lindsay Hoffman, my teammate, was totally right. You are fun and smart <laughs> and um, had a lot to share today. So I am grateful for your time. And honestly, I'm grateful for the work that you to that you do to fuel the nonprofit movement by virtue of your expertise. So thank you for that, too. 
Well, thank you. So that's Robin Sembalist and our podcast today on uh, the world of social media and how to take a more artful approach to it. Um, I hope you have enjoyed it. Uh, as always, you can find me at joangary.com where you will find my weekly blog that you can subscribe to. Uh, this podcast is one of close to a hundred on a very varying topics of interest. You can float over to iTunes and have a look at the topics and see which one uh, squeals your wheels. And I also have a membership site. Um, a robust community of remarkable board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. And we provide them with content and community at the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. And you should go check that out at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Until next time, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for the work that you do. Take care. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.